It was September 18, just one week after the major Al-Qaeda attacks on the US mainland in 2001, when something strange started happening to American Democratic senators and newsroom staff across the country. They were, as it seems, spontaneously getting very sick, and as it turned out, they were all being exposed to a deadly bacteria that was arriving to them via the post. And it's possibly one of the most famous cases of biological warfare. Now we're watching another biological agent wreak havoc, and it's no wonder that some are starting to look at the COVID-19 pandemic and ask, could you ask for a better result if you wanted to sow massive disruption and utter chaos? Hello and welcome to the Medical Republic. I'm Francine Crimmins and joining me to talk all about biological warfare on the show is Ruby Prosser-Scully. Hello. So Ruby, why do we need to talk about bioterrorism? Well, Francine, how do you feel about this coronavirus pandemic? (laughs) Well, I'm not going to say it's, you know, the greatest year of my life. Um, It's definitely... (laughs) been a bit weird and a steep learning curve. I definitely don't love it. And I'm definitely looking forward to, you know, being able to go to work and see family and friends again without this uh, creeping anxiety that I could be infecting hundreds of people at any given moment. Yeah, it's not great. Um, <laughs> we've, as you said, seen how much havoc a microbe can bring about. I mean, you know, the economies around the world are being hit by this. People's freedoms are being curtailed. Deaths are on the rise. And you raised the issue before, which is that people sometimes look at this, maybe our more conspiracy-minded peers, and say, could this be a biological attack? That's true, Ruby. And I mean, firstly, I'm no war expert. So maybe could you just differentiate between biological weapons from, say, the more familiar chemical ones like Agent Orange or sarin gas and other common poisons used in terror activity compared to biological weapons? Yeah, so a biological weapon is just the intentional release of something like bacteria, viruses, insects, fungi or toxins, um, either something that occurs naturally uh, or whether it has been tweaked or created in the lab. Yeah, we know that there are some baddies out there who are trying to attack us. Uh, Our increasing military spending suggests just as much. So, you know, what's to stop people from using a virus, just like the the coronavirus, as a weapon? I love that you just used the word baddies. It feels (laughs) very uh, like the perfect uh, childlike idea of, you know, these bad people in labs who are devising ways to take us all down. And it is quite <laughs> terrifying. Look, I don't want to be sued for libel. Um, so I'm not going to point my finger at any one country or one organization. Um, I know Al-Qaeda is extremely litigious. So I'm just going to bundle them all in one big amorphous group of baddies. And, you know, we can play out this thought experiment from there. And so as the one who's deep dived, as you say, uh, could you tell us a little bit about an example of how this kind of warfare has already played out? Yeah, it might seem like a sci-fi kind of an issue, but uh, biological warfare has definitely already happened. Uh, Bioterrorism has arguably been going on for millennia. Um, There are stories of people uh, slingshotting um, plague-ridden bodies over uh, fences and and, um, barricades to sort of infect people. So it's definitely not a new 
phenomenon. Um, you know, people might be familiar with it more recently. Anyone who's watched the Netflix docuseries Wild Wild Country, which uh, showed the story of uh, that eventually manifested in um, the 1980s in the US, where a group of free love hippies went up developing this homemade salmonella and they sprinkled what they called this salsa on salad bars in their local area. And they did it so that they could stop enough of the local residents from voting um, in the local election and sort of secure it for themselves. So that was one of the big, I guess, more recent um, examples of bioterrorism, um, which made, you know, 700 people ill and dozens were hospitalized. And I think that kind of brought home for people that and the Amerithrax, um, the anthrax attacks that you were talking about before, it really brought home how that could actually be something that we should worry about. I mean, just as an aside, I really hope that there's no senior Republicans listening because we really don't need to give them any more ideas uh, in that example that you just gave of how you can actually throw an election. Um, <laughs> Who needs defunding the postal service when you can just make people's food sick? <laughs> <laughs> But we do have much better food safety now. Uh, so the question is, why are we still worried about this? Well, because massive technological advances um, have been happening lately. And this is sort of making some people alarmed. You know, um, we know that we're better now at making new pathogens and tweaking old ones to make them more dangerous. But how is that the case, Ruby? Okay, so uh, let's look at some recent things that have happened in 2001. Um, Aussie researchers added an extra gene to a cousin of smallpox, a mousepox, to make it even more lethal, even to mice who had been vaccinated. Uh, we had something similar happen in 2011, where researchers announced that they had modified the bird flu to make it more transmissible in humans. So huge debate erupted over whether journals should publish the details of their work um, because this would essentially be handing over a recipe for a potentially deadly pandemic to malicious actors. And we're also realising that this kind of powerful research can be done by small-time actors. So Canadian scientists created a, a pox virus closely related to smallpox in a lab from scratch using mail-order DNA and it only cost them around $100,000. Now, this is a highly contagious virus that was responsible for an estimated half a billion deaths before it was eradicated. And now it looks like we could make something easily and cheaply like it in a lab. Yeah, and I mean, there's a reason why, from what we know about chemical warfare, for example, we actually have strategic ways that we stop people uh, making very dangerous things at home. You know, we have limits on how much fertilizer you could buy or, you know, there's police that frequently take down recipes on the dark web that, you know, show people how to make very dangerous weapons. So I guess with this, we may actually be at risk of a mad scientist or a mad individual kind of getting the hold of one of these biological recipes and unleashing, say, a tweaked pox on us all. Yeah, that's the big fear from experts working in this field is that biological weapons are just easier, sort of cheaper to make and a little bit more easy to hide what you're doing from those kind of authorities that would be looking out for, you know, enriched plutonium purchases or, you know, chemical wa uh, warfare. So that is, yeah, absolutely um, the kind of worry there. And, you know, the other thing about it is that it, it seems to be a little bit more surreptitious. So we might not even recognize an attack 
Um, at the time, the Rajneeshi, uh poisoning that I mentioned, the salmonella poisoning, was just thought to be a bad case of food poisoning. Um, so some in this field sort of argue that we might not realize that we're being attacked. Um, and, you know, what if bioterrorists were designing a, a common bacteria and just making it resistant to antibiotics? You know, this could be a way of uh, sowing destruction and uh, by accelerating the threat of antimicrobial resistance. And it is a terrifying thought to think that there are people out there with the capacity and the technology to make superbugs and release them into the population. A hundred percent. You know, it's expected to, antibiotic resistance is expected to kill, what, uh, 10 million people um, a year by 2050. So it's a real threat already. And if you just wanted to make some small tweaks here or there, you could really ramp up what is essentially, you know, an existential threat against our species. (laughs) But now that I've kind of created the sort of worst case uh, scenario, it is worth noting that not everybody in the bioterrorism space uh, believes that that's a major threat. Uh, You know, some people think that the biggest kind of threat or the most compelling threat uh, is just from your everyday microbes. Yeah. And why is that, that they opt for kind of these, I don't want to say lower grade pathogens, but the more common pathogens rather than the more extreme technologically enhanced ones? Yeah. So so the reason is just that the more dangerous a pathogen is to handle, the more likely you're going to get hurt yourself by developing and handling it. Um, so, you know, it's really easy. People become food poisoned all the time. Uh, all you need to do is, you know, have poor hygiene or poor food handling practices, um, and you can get salmonella. So it'd be really relatively easy to obtain it and culture it, uh, in a sort of home laboratory. I guess. So if any old terrorist, if you like to think of it, could be taking salmonella and poisoning people at any time, I can't help. But think of, you know, the kinds of attacks that are more commonly associated uh, with organised terrorist cells and the idea that, you know, would a terrorist want to use salmonella poisoning? And ISIS in the kitchen doesn't sound that scary. Um, Doesn't that (laughs) defeat the purpose of inspiring terror in people? Yeah, exactly right. You know, when we're talking about bioterrorism, the whole issue here is, you know, what is the motivation of the attacker? And, you know, while it might be really easy for them to get something like salmonella um, and, you know, uh, do it surreptitiously, that's not what we think about when we think about bioterrorism or when we think about terrorism, you know. Um, If you're designing an attack that's going to inspire fear and that's going to, you know, shake people to their core or, you know, make them confront ideological issues, um, yet something that looks like it's natural, like a coronavirus that's starting a pandemic or a a really bad bout of food poisoning, isn't really going to be that big flashy statement that uh, terrorists are going to want. And if you did, I guess, if you did want to make a big statement, um, it seems like the pathogen that you'd likely use is something like anthrax, because this, if done well, um, you can make, you know, if you have really fine, uh, well-designed spores, they can spread very far, contaminating buildings and spreading sickness to hundreds and even thousands of people. Luckily enough, um, it's really difficult to do well. And so in that case, you'd probably need state actors. Does it mean that we should worry the most about DIY terrorists or should we actually be looking at government programs that may have the capacity 
to release or endorse this kind of warfare in other nations? Maybe no one. So, you know, while it's possible for small-scale actors to launch a terrorist attack with something like ricin or E. coli, um, some experts believe that these uh, terrorists would be better served by using explosives or industrial chemicals that were readily available and didn't require such a a finicky kind of production. And what about the government programs that you suggested? Well, in a similar way, uh, it's also impractical. Um, You know, you've had in history uh, agreements that have been signed um, and some of the major players in this field, like uh, Russia and the US, have agreed to dismantle their biological warfare programs. So, yeah, I mean, they're unlikely to be doing it, obviously, um, in a way that's going to be uh, picked up and and, and, um, seen by international Uh, other countries. But um, there is also the practical issue of uh, state actors might not really be particularly inclined to either, you know, certainly not do this openly, but do it surreptitiously. And um, that's in part because if other countries were to find out that, you know, a country like America or someone like that was developing biological weapons and launching it on someone else, the international retribution would be big. Uh, If America, for example, was attacked by a biological weapon, um, there's every chance that they might retaliate with nuclear warfare or a a major military response. Again, in terms of practicality, um, if you're a state actor, it isn't as good or it may not be as good as uh, other weapons that are out there. So, you know, you have the conspiracy theory that suggests that coronavirus was maliciously launched from China. But what that really overlooks is that what kind of a military general would have chosen to launch uh, a virus that they don't really know necessarily the efficacy or the the transmittability of it, there's blowback in that it's also attacking and killing their own population. And, you know, no military general could have banked on the US and other countries mishandling the crisis so badly. Yeah. And as you just pointed out, there is that blowback effect. I mean, a lot of these strategies would work if we lived in, you know, a pre-globalized world, uh, because then you could launch it a little bit like you launch any other weapon, you know, into a foreign environment. But as you just pointed out, if you were to launch biological warfare into another nation and then you, you know, get 30% of tourism from that country every year. It's kind of a slap in your own face. So it doesn't really make any sense. But on a kind of hypothetical scale, what do we do and how do we protect ourselves from this threat? Yeah, exactly. And and this is another one of those double-edged sword kind of things. So, um, you know, for some experts, uh, the the huge amounts of money that we're spending on protecting against bioterrorism might be better spent on curing or improving infectious diseases that are already causing mortality and morbidity for us today. Um, The kind of surveillance programs, the kind of rapid response resources and systems that are required for, um, you know, a naturally occurring uh, infectious disease or, you know, a virus like the one causing this pandemic also double as a a really good um, preparation for bioterrorism. But, you know, what we do have is we have a hypothetical situation of, um, you know, either a a small-scale terrorist organisation or a 
uh, international um, uh, state actor launching a, a terrorist attack and potentially, you know, um, causing problems for Australians. Um, you know, that that is a hypothetical that, that could emerge. But right now, in the here and now, we are being affected by things like on a global scale, HIV, tuberculosis, um, we're seeing a reemergence of measles and plenty of food and waterborne illnesses. Um, they are causing disruption, but we are nowhere near as worried about them as we are um, against the threat of bioterrorism. So in more practical terms, what do those protections look like? So, you know, that means building our capacity to really quickly ramp up new diagnostic tools and developing broad spectrum treatments, whether that's antibiotics, maybe phage therapy, uh, whatever other treatments are out there, and vaccines. And, you know, some argue that um, our biggest weapon in Australia, uh, our biggest defence tool in Australia, is uh, a free healthcare system, which means that anyone, anytime can get tested and treatment um, and you don't find these sort of uh, issues festering in the darkness. So all things considered and everything that we've discussed, how concerned should we be about the threat of bioterrorism? Well, yeah, there are heaps of new pathogens emerging, but maybe what we need to be the most worried about is these coming from nature itself. We have climate change and habitat destruction, uh, people living closer to wildlife that they might have never before. And we know that that increases the risk of zoonotic infections. And really with the increase in global temperatures and deforestations, uh, that's only going to be exacerbated. So our fear of uh, a new Amerithrax or a modern-day cult of Rajneeshis might actually be the least of our worries. Which uh, is not the greatest news because here I am trying to get over my COVID anxiety and, you know, that may be the least of our worries and, you know, the entire destruction of the planet is actually the, the bigger fish to fry here. <laughs> yeah, don't worry about this pandemic because the whole world is burning. <laughs> oh, Very gosh. Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, on that cheery note, thank you so much, Ruby, for joining me on the podcast and for sharing all your research and your latest story with us.